Hi, this is listener Shane from San Clemente, California, and you're listening to Better Place Project. Make the world a better place. 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 So I got my second COVID shot yesterday. Yay! You're all vaxxed up. Yeah, well, I'll be well, officially all vaxxed up two weeks from yesterday, because they say it takes two weeks after your second shot to be 100% vaccinated. But I at least feel like, uh, hey, I'm almost there. So it's a, it's a good feeling, and I'm just proud of my country for all the work that America has done and how quickly they got these vaccines out, and it's so huge. And I would encourage everybody all around the world, get the vaccine I know there's been scary news all around the world about the AstraZeneca shot and the Pfizer shot where they each had a handful, literally like six or seven or eight strokes as a result of these shots. And just I would urge everyone who does not want to get the shot to just reconsider because the odds of you getting COVID, I read an article yesterday about this. So don't quote me, Aaron, on the exact details, (laughs) but it was something like you have a 150,000 times greater chance of getting COVID than you do of getting a severe reaction from the shot. So the data is in. It's it's so much safer. So and it helps society. So get your shots, Aaron. I believe you have your first one, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm almost all vaxxed up, but yeah, I'm still waiting for that second dose. And it's tough right now, though, because it's been so long, and now we're kind of starting to see the end of all of this. And it feels like senior year of high school when you're <laughs> almost done with everything, and you start to kind of like give up. You loosen up. You're like, oh wait. I'm probably fine without taking notes in class, yeah, and well, I can slack off a little bit, but I know we can't. <laughs> we can't let down our guard. Yeah, I still wear the Not mask. Yet. Well, because what they don't know is, you know, you may be vaccinated, but you still may be able to carry the virus and give it to others. So keep wearing masks and keep social distancing and all that good stuff, and that yeah. will get us all back to normal and living our lives again. Oh, my gosh. We all want that so much. So Yeah, I'm so excited. So anyway, we're coming off a high from last week's episode. My gosh, Terrence Lester was just an incredible inspiration. If you have not listened to that episode, you will be blown away. It was last Tuesday's episode. My gosh, amazing. We talked about a topic that sometimes is uncomfortable and tough for all of us, talking about people experiencing homelessness. But Terrence has a way of talking about that experience from their perspective that just after you listen to this episode, it makes you want to go up and engage anytime you see a person experiencing homelessness. Just such an inspiration and just such an amazing guest. Yeah, all of the stories that he told us, I found to be really profound and he definitely transformed my perspective of people experiencing homelessness. Yep, I would agree. And today we are shifting gears a bit. Aaron, tell us about our guest this week. Dr. Heim is an award-winning clinical psychiatrist. He has a PhD from the University of Sydney, and during his 20 years as a doctor and 13 years as a psychiatrist, he has heard the stories of thousands of people. He gets lots of joy out of working as a consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy. He speaks from a place of deep compassion and authority on mental health issues that are affecting us all in this new normal. Anxiety, depression, addictions, trauma, suicide, personality issues, and relationship breakdown. Dr. Heim is also an author and his latest book is called The Seven Love Types, Navigating Love in a Fractured World. I'm really excited for this episode because with so many of the guests we've had on our show so far, we've discussed different struggles that people have experienced, and it all relates to mental health in some way. And I'm glad that in this episode, we got to do a deeper dive on this subject. Yeah, he was so much fun, such an engaging personality, Dr. Christian, and Like you said, this is another topic that is not easy for all of us to talk about, especially us men who tend to have walls around us. And he just kind of has a way of breaking down those barriers with some really interesting kind of tools to to put in your toolbox. I really liked his 
his uh, acronym on gratitude, which I thought was, uh, was really cool. So just something that we've all had a rough time through this pandemic, and it's affected so many people's lives. So I think this topic is really on point. And something else I found interesting is he talked about the difference between the female brain and the male brain, which mm-hmm. I really think there's a lot of truth to that. No doubt about that. So without further ado, Dr. Christian Heim. Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Welcome, Dr. Christian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Steve. Uh, Aaron, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful. Wonderful to have you. You are officially, correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, we've had guests from Indonesia to Germany to where Costa Rica, Nigeria, but Australia, I believe you are our Mm -hmm. first guest from Australia. Well, thank you. That's a privilege (laughs) for me. I feel honored. And what I love about it is because of the time zone, Aaron and I usually tend to, we, we've done a lot of East Coast and like I mentioned, some European guests. So usually we're doing it early in the morning. Yep. So in this case, since you're in Australia, it's now evening our time. So I decided I get to have a glass of wine <laughs> while we have this conversation. So, All right, so I'll you are, my water. <laughs> you are officially the very first uh, guest that uh, I've actually uh, broke out a little vino. So <laughs> Normally we're drinking coffee. Okay. Okay. During our interviews. Yes, I've just had mine, actually, so that's that works out well. <laughs> Great. And lots of coffee. Okay, so diving right in, one thing we haven't talked about is we have a couple things in common. <laughs> it intrigued me when I heard about you that not only you are a well-known psychiatrist and a, an award-winning psychiatrist and speaker, but you also are a piano player, which I'm a piano player as well. And I understand you started in classical music, which you took it, as did I, but you took it a lot further than I did. You were a conductor and did all kinds of great things there as well. And then you discovered rock and roll, as I did also. So tell us a little bit about your background in music and then how you evolved into the field that you are in now. Okay, well, it's, it's actually quite an involved story, Steve, but basically I came from a, uh, a migrant family. Uh, we were war refugees uh, that came to uh, Australia, and um, music was not in my background at all. But when I was in kindergarten, this little nun came up to me in the play school, uh, in the uh, schoolyard, and said to me, you're going to learn to play the piano. And I said, what's that? And she said, you'll find out. So I had no idea. Um, And I started playing piano. And in my teenage years, yeah, I discovered rock and roll uh, after the classical music. And it was a strange experience. That's exactly how it was for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. Just the girls were just not interested when I played Mozart or Beethoven. So it was the (laughs) rock and roll. I thought I had to play rock and roll if the girls are going to be interested. So that's what did it for me. There is a bit bit like that. But but I was playing some Beethoven. Okay. And so when I first heard rock and roll, uh, and for me it was heavy metal bands, I couldn't believe that the same word music was used for classical music and for heavy metal right oh yeah and so i i I had a heavy metal uh band uh in high school that was a lot of fun but afterwards um i I actually got into music because i didn't get into medicine um i didn't have enough marks to get into medicine so i pursued my second love which was music and uh as you said I, i went across to vienna to learn conducting and i ended up lecturing at uh universities so music analysis is is my sort of thing. So the tie between psychiatry and music, maybe that analysis, seeing how it all sort of fits together. Sure. uh, Because each person's mind is a bit like a symphony, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, each person's symphony sounds different, but it all sort of hangs together somehow. And so it's a privilege for me to get to know what goes on in, in somebody's thought life and their feelings. Yeah, and I love the way you incorporate music into your podcast, into your YouTube channels. You literally are sitting there at your piano, and I want to tell our guests to check out Dr. Christian Heim, H-E-I-M, the YouTube channel that he and now I'm assuming it's your wife, Dr. Carolyn. Yes, yes, yes. That's my is your wife. wife. I 
I assumed it was your wife, even though on one of your podcasts that I was listening to a couple days ago that you, or maybe it was a, a speech you two gave together somewhere and you said, coincidentally, she has the same last name as I do. That's right. I, I thought that was tongue in cheek, but I didn't want to assume uh, it, it was. So I wanted to confirm for sure. If, uh, uh, well, well, definitely. We, uh, Caroline too has a performative background. She's a lecturer in, um, in theater studies at a university. And uh, she's had stage experience. So the whole performative side of what we do comes from Caroline. And um, okay. so we, we, we love working together. Uh, we like um, constructing uh, kind of theatre music pieces together. And we find that that's a lot of fun and we get to share our artistic side. But the great need, as you know, is in mental health. Uh, and so last year at her university where a lot of the drama students were struggling. They had just left home. They were living in new environments. College life was completely new to them. And then they find themselves in lockdowns, okay? Not allowed to get outside the house, okay? Not allowed to talk to people or to hug their parents, okay? Mm -hmm. And so we found that we uh, were putting together these uh, mental health videos uh, for students and for a whole lot of other people because we had to keep people's mental health together. In fact, can you talk a little bit about, uh, since that is your area of expertise, can you talk a little bit about exactly what does that mean when you say preventive mental health? Yeah, um, Steve, preventative mental health is one of those things. I selfishly uh, went into preventative mental health because if I, I thought that if I could stop people getting mental health illnesses in the first place, then I'd have a lot, lot more free time on my hands. (laughs) But you can't bill as much, though. That's the problem. Your clients uh, don't come back for more. But But in a way, that would be fine with me. And that would be fine Mm. with psychiatrists all across the world because we are all overworked. We are all in too much demand and we cannot Mm -hmm. keep up with what's happening in society at the moment. And the Mm. problem is that this has crept up onto us over the last 50 years or so. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, like. We used to have a statistic where I used to tell people, well, if if your parent, if one of your parents is depressed, genetically, there's about a 12% chance that you will suffer from depression as well. And people would go, oh, 12% chance. Oh, that's terrible. Genetics makes a difference. And of course, that statistic is absolutely blown out of the water these days when we see that almost, almost one in four adults um, are on antidepressants, okay? So in other words, just by being alive now, your chance of being on an antidepressant is about one in four, one in four yeah. almost 25%, okay? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, so all of a sudden, genetics is, is not the thing because the, the rate rises that we have seen in mental health illness, uh, mental illness over the past ooh, 30 years in particular have been astronomical there is something of a mental illness epidemic on at the moment and it can't be our genetics steve because our genetics hasn't changed appreciably for about sixty thousand years now yeah and i'm curious about that because i've noticed that as well that mental health is such a common conversation now and why do you think that is do you think more people are feeling comfortable in sharing their mental health struggles or do you think it's getting worse because of new technology that we have now or changes in our lifestyles? What do you think? Well, Erin, that's actually a very, uh, a very important topic because mental health used to be very stigmatized. Yeah. It used to be, and I'm talking about 40, 50 years ago, that you could expect maybe four or 5% of the population would be struggling with mental health issues at any given time. And it was, seen at that time almost as a character defect. And so mm-hmm. nobody wanted to go near people with mental health issues. Whereas uh, a study, or this is a study from about 10 years ago, basically said that for people alive today, half of us can expect to get a mental illness diagnosis, right? So we've gone from 5% to yeah. about 50%, okay? I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but mm-hmm. sure. it's, it's, it's common, okay? And the nice thing about younger people, Erin, is that um, they're actually a whole lot more honest with each other. Yeah. Have you had this happen to you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, me too, okay? What do we kind of do about it? And so there's this tolerance for 
what we're all going through. Whereas uh, people who are in their 70s and 80s are still used to having a, um, a social face that has certain standards, you know, that admits to certain things and not to other certain things, because that's just a culture that they grew up in. Okay, mm -hmm. so there has been a shift in this culture. It still needs to shift a bit more, but mental illness, unfortunately, is part of all of our day-to-day -day life. We all know somebody. Yeah. Well, and then on top of that, we've had this pandemic unleashed on us all over the world. And what changes, what impact can you talk about that that has had on our society? And has it been a, um, I would imagine, a very intense steep increase in mental yeah. illness or yeah what has been your experience oh steve it's it's very sad okay now quite obviously with the pandemic the covid pandemic on at the moment we do have to preserve lives we do have to do what we can to contain this virus however the cost of the way we're doing it <clears throat> has been large and I'll, I'll talk only about suicide in the usa Okay, because the statistics are very clear there. Since 1999, going up to 2017, there's been a 33% increase in the rate of suicide. Okay, now that, that's actually mind boggling. That's uh, because, right. yeah, it is, it is, it's insane because something that was, I won't say totally stable, but relatively stable for about 100 years, all of a sudden is just creeping up. And so the question is why? You might sort of say, yeah, we're detecting more of it, but that's not all that it is. Now, the thing is that that, that takes us to pre-COVID. In the COVID time, just where I am, okay, the amount of suicides that I have heard about, we know about um, rescue workers uh, that w work for the state emergency service. They normally go out uh, and do um, find and rescue for people. Uh, now what are they doing? They're doing retrievals of bodies because uh -huh. they are finding people who have suicided. Um, I, I was doing one lecture and a woman came up to me and said, yeah, in our town, we've had five teenagers suicide in the past three years, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and obviously as a psychiatrist, you know, I'm sort of in the circles where we hear these things. But these stories are now coming via people who are lecturers, teachers, parents, friends. It's, 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 not, it's not just psychiatrists that are exposed to this now. It is too many more people. And so uh, we don't have the statistics yet. But just anecdotally, during this COVID time, uh, suicides have gone up. Depression rates have gone up. Anxiety rates have gone up. I, mm -hmm. I like to say that all of us are carrying around an extra 20 pounds of anxiety. All of us, the whole society is there. And the cumulative effect of that is just so damaging. Yeah, and, and it's on young people, Steve, too. You know, yeah. uh, the, the mortality in COVID is on older people. Okay, I, I know that there are new variants, which means that younger people are more at risk as well. But the lockdowns and the social isolation has what we call a morbidity. So in other words, a, uh, a health effect on younger people in particular. All right. And that mm -hmm. that's, that's damaging. That's very hard. Well, and, and young people also have had a, they're growing up in a completely different world than you and I grew up in, in with the advent of social media yeah. and there's the, the Instagram likes and the, and so that, uh, you know, I've, I've read has a, can just have a tremendous negative effect on the self-esteem and the overall mental, mental health of young boys and girls trying, you know, are they getting likes on their Facebook yeah. and their Instagram and, and are they not, or are they getting bullied on there? Are people making fun of them? And, and so then you add on top of that the isolation of a pandemic and all of that. And wow. Sure. Yeah. What advice can you, can you give for, let's talk about young people in particular, since you're, you, you said that it's a big problem in that demographic Yeah. yeah. for, for families with teenagers. Uh, what can they do when they talk to them? What should they say to them? What steps can they take to hopefully prevent 
well, their kids from going down this path. Steve, during that, you showed me your mobile phone, okay? And it's it's like we're uh, we have one of these attached to all of it, mm-hmm. all of us. Uh, but Erin, I'd like to ask you, how would you describe your relationship with your mobile phone? <laughs> I um, struggle with it for sure. I am lucky though, because from for me growing up, I didn't have Instagram really or social media on my phone until after I graduated high school. So there was this healthy boundary for, um, you know, I definitely experienced getting anxiety at school or nerves around people or feeling pressure on myself to um, look a certain way, be a certain way. But then when I would go home, I could escape that. But yes. now today, so many young kids don't have that. They have that That's pressure right. and anxiety at school yes. and then they go, come home and then they're on their phone and they feel that same way, I imagine, which is awful. Yeah. Yeah. So so you mentioned growing up without Instagram, say. Yeah. All right. Um, and, and I don't want to sing it out Instagram because Instagram is probably one of the better sites there yeah. are sure. around yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Steve, you and I grew up at a time when computers didn't exist. So we didn't even have that um, idea that a screen could fulfill our needs or could become our socializing place or could become our workplace, okay? And Erin, you you grew up at a time when uh, we didn't have everything sort of right in our hands on a cell phone, okay? Exactly. So, so here's here's what happens. I've I've been to uh, psychiatric conferences where we look at all the data and we see that there's been a change in 2007. And when it comes to young people in particular, things hot up, get worse since 2007. And 2007 is when the iPhone came out. 2007 wow. is when we could carry the whole internet around with us in our hands. And Erin, there are now people that have grown up in a world that it only had computers, that only had cell phones. Mm-hmm. This is the way the world is. Whereas your brain is still wired to remember a time when Instagram did not exist. Right. Um, my brain is wired to remember a time when computers did not exist. And the thing is that we see huge rate rises, particularly in depression and anxiety, together with the advent of the uh, cell phone. And we do have evidence uh, to find out that, you know what, the cell phone is not doing us any favors. If if we could use it just for an hour a day, it would be the most wonderful technology we have. But I do want to, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I want to um, quote a study out of China where they said, okay, let's get some college kids that use their phones are in and are on screens for more than 10 hours a day. Okay. Can we find any detrimental effects? And they did. They measured a part of their brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus, which takes care of our empathy. So in other words, it hooks us together as human beings, wow. right? And in these people, it was shrinking. It was appreciably smaller. And that is frightening because that means that the more that we use these things, it is, it is. It means that we're losing our ability. The less connected we truly are. And the less ability that we have to make those connections so that making human connections is becoming harder and harder and harder. So that's hard. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's depressing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry uh... about that. It is depressing. (laughs) (laughs) It is. My gosh. Yeah. And it's sad because... Social media, I mean, it kind of contradicts the whole point of that. Like, I think it was put in place for us to be able to connect with other people in a fun way. And it, you know, we've seen now over time, it's start, it's doing the opposite, really. Yes, yes. And and that's a strange thing. So so it's a side effect. Nobody went in with the intent of uh, disconnecting everybody okay in fact when they first did the studies about how connected people felt to each other um uh, let's say if they were on facebook or connected to the internet they expected people to be having the wow of the time whereas what they found was the opposite the more connected you are to internet services the lonelier you feel as a human being Mm. Um, uh, yeah i mean 
I have neighbors all around us, just like we did in the 1960s. But do I know them? A whole Are lot Are they outside? Less. Are there kids outside playing? And That's right. Yeah, all of those things. That's right. Exactly. So, so what can parents do? Should they, I mean, it seems like the logical solution is, uh, you know, phones go in a box when they come home, or they don't take a phone to school, obviously. But, I mean, it seems to me that would be the first thing that I would want to do as a parent if Aaron, you know, Aaron's an adult now, so she can use her phone. I mean, I have, we'll get to me in a minute. I'm addicted <laughs> to this thing as well. Yeah, so, yeah. So I'm a whole nother case, but, uh, but for young minds growing up, yeah. uh, preteens, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, my gosh, I can't imagine yeah. having to be a parent when all the you know, 13-year-olds had, had phones because I would not have allowed it, and Erin would have hated me uh, more than she did hate me when she was 12 <laughs> years old. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, we, we have two boys, and um, they hated us for a while uh, for different <laughs> reasons, course. okay? So we'll, we'll get to that. And uh, I also want to get back to preventative mental health. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, which we will eventually do. But the reason that we're talking about this as far as preventative mental health is concerned, because the bottom line for preventative mental health uh, for, for us in our society is people. Stay connected with people. But I'll, I'll get back to that. I'm going to go back to the parenting with the, uh, the cell phone, because this is really, really difficult. Uh, the World Health Organization uh, okay, Has it, they've got a wonderful site and they actually put out some really top class um, information. Uh, the trouble is it's not, it's not very glamorous, so we tend not to access it as much. But uh, one of their recommendations is that there should be no screen technology whatsoever for children in their first year of life. So don't even think of using it as a babysitter. Don't even think of introducing them to cartoons or screens or anything. Pretend it doesn't exist for the first year of life. And Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so I looked at it and I thought, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that screen technology is not very good for us. Okay. So in the second year of life, does that mean you go straight into all the screen stuff and everything? No, you try to keep this away as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we kept uh, computer technology uh, away from our children. Uh, okay, so it was gaming. Okay, we've got boys, and uh, gaming is a real problem with boys, as you oh, know, yeah. because yes. they love it. Erin has two brothers. Her, <laughs> her two brothers were and are gamers you can totally still. Totally relate, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we kept them away from television and gaming and computers for the first five years of their life all right so uh -huh. none whatsoever didn't exist and when they were about 18 20 they came up to us and they were really angry with us and we said what, what what's what's the problem they said well you you kept us away from screen technology and gaming for the first five years of our life i said yeah i thought we were doing the right thing they said, yeah, but you should have kept it away for the first 15 years of our life. <laughs> Is that right? That's right. Wow. And, and then we would be better off with our brains. Okay. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, and I've got to say, it was a struggle to keep it away for the first five years of their life oh, because yeah. they have friends that have this and they have that. And, you know, and the whole thing was, why do you stop this? Our friends are allowed to do it. And it's what every parent gets, all right? Yeah. Of course. Yep. Yep. Aaron used to throw that at me all the time. <laughs> Everybody else is going to Everybody the party. Else, that's right. <laughs> Everybody yeah. else gets to do this. Yeah. All right. So, so I will um, throw out one really good res uh, resource. There was a book written in 2013. It's called Mind Change. It was written by a neuro uh, uh, sorry a neuroscientist by the name of Susan Greenfield, and she asked the question: Is computer technology the best thing we've ever had, or is this causing us some problems? Uh, you, you don't have to read too far before you find out what side she's really on. <laughs> yeah. But but she goes through the mechanisms of really in detail as to what all this technology is doing to our brains. It's sad. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, fascinating stuff. But it, it's like you said, though, if we could only learn within our culture, within our societies to to use it responsibly 
then it is an amazing tool. Yes, it is. It's if, amazing. If we all did only pull it out once an hour, it, it is amazing to be able to ask Siri, you know, how many miles away is Pluto from Earth? Yes. And you have that instantly at your fingertips. Yes. So there, there are, are so many things about technology that really do and can improve our lives. But uh, my gosh, the... You know, we're, we're paying a price for it. Absolutely. To your point. Yeah, we are. So, so I'll, I'll give some practical things that parents can do and some practical things that teenagers and young adults can do. So the first thing that parents can do is to use it as a reward. OK. And to set limits of certain times. And there's actually no human being that should have any computer technology in their bedroom. All right. Adults included. Uh, yeah, because. I agree. You're just going to wake up and you're going to look at the news feed, okay? Or you're going to wonder who sent you a message, all right? Or you're just going to check on something just before you go to sleep, okay? And mm -hmm. so to have eight hours with that away is just a good idea. Uh, it's about changing the culture. So the culture in our family might be something like, you know what? We don't have these things at the dinner table. Uh, we have these things in a box and they stay there for this amount of time. And we play board games. Okay. I, I know that's really hard to do. And it's, it's really but hard. Our, our family loves board games though. Aaron is a, is a board game queen. She's always organizing little family get together. So we're huge fans. Oh, that's great. That. Because <laughs> yeah. board games and card games, you start to see people's personality. You start to laugh together. You you have to look at each other and sort of see what's happening. Sure. All of that yep. is fantastic. And all of that can't be done if you're constantly interrupted by, by phones, okay? Mm -hmm. So to use yep. it as a reward and to try to say, in our house, this is what we do. And when somebody asks, why are you taking my phone away? The answer is because I love you. Uh, mm. It's not ah. because you're being naughty. It's because I love you and I want you to be the best you that you can be. Uh, and, and that'll take some explaining at some stage, but it's actually the truth. Well, I just wanted to say something for teenagers and young adults, all right, because, hey, life is yours, okay? You're together, and it's got to become a change in culture. So if even once a week people could get together and have a phone-free party, Okay, where people actually turn up to a party and all the phones get chucked into a box and nobody's allowed to see them until they leave. Right. Mm -hmm. The interactions at that party will just be so different. Okay. It'll be awkward at first, but then you sort sure. of get to look into each other's eyes more. You get to laugh together more and you'll go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? I'm bored. Okay. Well, what do you do when you're bored? Go out and kick some leaves. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I took up swing dancing at, uh, in my, well, let's just say not my thirties and, uh, just recently a few years ago. And for that reason, it's just such an incredible experience because you go out dancing with so yeah. many, you know, amazing people and nobody has their phone when you are out yeah. there dancing and you are engaged with that partner for three minutes and you can't help but be in the moment. And, you know, to your point where if you're playing games and you're interacting with people and you're at a party and so many of us do it. I know I do it when I'm in a, a group of people and you talk to a few people and then you go into another room and oh, okay, I have a minute and you turn it down and you look at your phone and, yep. and we do it sometimes out of habit, it, it, you know, so Aaron, we need to do that. We're going to have some phone free family get togethers. I like that. I love that idea. And thanks for sharing that because we do need practical ways to, you know, limit our social media and our cell phone use. And I think it really takes adults to be able to limit that in their life before they instill that on their kids as well. So I think that's also a huge issue. Very so good. Okay. grown ups need this that's advice. Very yeah. Good. Yes, grown ups do need that advice. <laughs> um, and if you have outings, hikes, camps, all right. Um, whoever you go away with, uh, sure, people say, oh, we need this for safety, but you only need one cell phone for safety, okay? Uh, everybody else yeah. can leave theirs at home because you imagine being around a campfire. It's cold at your backs. It's, it's warm around your hands and your face, and you start sharing some stories, and it's one of the most beautiful moments that life has to offer 
And the one way to take that away is a cell phone ringing, okay? Or somebody just wanting to check something in the middle of somebody else's story, okay? Campfire and cell phones just don't mix. So you've got to actually plan to keep it away. Wow, I love that. And uh, yeah, we took Aaron and her brothers camping quite a bit when they were kids as well. Fortunately, yeah, that was prior to cell phones or... I think cell phones were around. I had one, and it was probably a big, giant one about the size of a phone book that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was plugged into my car, probably. <laughs> yeah, Back yeah. then, we used to call them car phones. I don't know if you remember <laughs> yes, those days. Yes, I remember car phones. Yeah, yeah. yeah we called them car phones. So, <laughs> But one thing that I came across in one of your talks that I found really, really interesting, you talked about the difference between men's brains and women's brains. Okay, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll link it to our current technology problem because the technology problem is actually different for males and females, okay? Interesting. So, so Steve, um, uh, I started off talking about uh, if you looked at a brain, you wouldn't know if it was male or female. They look almost exactly the same. And so the differences come when you start bathing one in testosterone, right, and you bathe the other in estrogen, estrogen yeah. then uh, then the um, brain in testosterone will want a body that basically has male characteristics, and the uh, the brain uh, in estrogen will end up with a body that has female characteristics. Now, obviously, it's not quite that simplistic, but that's part of the equation. And we've done a lot of analysis between the male and the female brain, and the amazing thing is, there's not much difference. Uh, IQ, for example, is is exactly the same, right? The differences is that the female brain tends to be superior in verbal skills. So having words, but not just having words, being able to make connections with people, being in relationship. Uh, and females tend to preserve their relationship, okay? Or even be the relationship makers for a whole family, all right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the male brain has specialized to have spatial skills, okay? So map reading, uh, being able to know where you are in a car and, uh, and to have, and so it, it ends up having specialized problem solving skills because to solve a problem, you've got to map out the landscape of the problem before you zero in on what needs to be solved. And, and these are very slight. That, that, that does not mean that men are useless at relationships and it does not mean that women cannot read maps, okay? <laughs> We're actually all really good at all of that, but there's just this slight difference. And from an evolutionary point of view, it's quite clear where that came from. Um, The the women would uh, do most of the child rearing, and that's been the case for all of our existence. So relationship is very important. Whereas uh, men uh, would most of the time uh, be the hunters and, uh, and produce something or come home with what feeds the whole village, okay? And so for that, you've got to read a landscape. You've got to have stealth. You've got to uh, know how to solve the problem of trapping a beast, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, we we don't live like that anymore in today's society, okay? But our brains have evolved this way. So I'll link it to technology now. So uh, with screens, it is the, the male brains that want to be involved in mortal combat, in action racing, in hunting something down, in all the the bang-bang sort of stuff, okay? And um, for young males, if we do not have a place for them in society, uh, then they will just get onto their screens and say, hey, I can can do with this. This will be fine for me. The interesting thing is that the suicide rate is increasing, particularly for young females. And so here's the... um, Here's the theory behind that, and this comes from Jonathan Haidt, and I think his idea has uh, has uh, credibility. Uh, because women are relational, females are relational, they use the relational side of the internet, social media, Facebook, Instagram, messaging, all of that. But female aggression comes out relationally, okay? So excluding a female or singling a female out because they're somehow different or actually bullying another female, all right? Mm -hmm. It's done a lot. 
and, and that leads to depression, anxiety, and unfortunately, suicide. So that could be, uh, we don't have a study to prove it, but that could be the mechanism of action for uh, female suicides in the younger age groups just starting to creep up. So that, that's very sad. So, so in a way, what I'm saying is the side effect of our wonderful technology is that it's tapped into very, uh, very uh, primitive areas of our brain and it's taken advantage of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's disconnecting it. So we're talking, we're back to talking about the problems of technology, Steve. <laughs> well, Just and then, back to that. then yeah. how about as it relates to relationships? And this yes. is kind of a nice segue into, into your book. You have a book called yeah. Seven Love Types, Navigating yes. Love in a Fractured World. So yeah. tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. All right, so as a psychiatrist, my subspecialty has become psychotherapy with people who have experienced severe trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's horrific, some of the things that happen to people out there, okay? But I have personally known people who have had severe trauma and they've never had to go into psychotherapy. And I've wondered why is that? And what they have told me is, look, I come from a huge family. We share a lot of love and time together. I married and created a huge family. And the love of my family is a big, warm bath that I can soak in every day. And I thought, wow. Then I looked to the evidence. And sure enough, uh, a child psychiatrist by the name of Bruce Perry wrote a whole book on studies that he had done showing that love protects children from the ill effects of trauma. So in other words, these are children who have been traumatized. And if we can get them into a situation of love, then they will go on to lead very functional lives. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, we live in a society where the word love uh, has become a four-letter word, okay? People are very cynical about love because people get very hurt about love. And we've been mixing all these different types of love and we equate love and sex more and more that we've forgotten about how important family love is. And this is a love type, which uh, which is called storge. And so I talk about belonging love. Or I'm sorry, which is called love. what? I'm sorry? Storge. So that's S-T-O-R-G-E. And that's an ancient Greek term that means the love of belonging. So ah, the love of okay. being part of a family. Mm-hmm. And... We've all taken our families for granted, okay? We're all off doing individual things, which means that we spend a lot less time there. And this particular love, storge love, the love of just chilling out with your family, or even the love of arguing with your sibling while you do the washing up, all right? You're still in relationship. It doesn't feel good, but you're in relationship. We're sort of letting all that go. So one of the reasons that I... uh, wrote this book about the seven love types is so that we would have more words for the different types of love that we have in our society so that we could foster all those different types of love because we need them all. It's not just about romance and long-term relationships. Although that's one love type, obviously. (laughs) As I was going through your podcast, I was flipping through your episodes and all of a sudden I noticed there were not one, not two, not five, but I think 11 episodes on overcoming negative thoughts, which I found really, really interesting. So I think those are things that we all grapple with. I know I do. And I have, when I've had turmoil in my life, I find myself saying my inner dialogue, you know, what an idiot. Why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? What'd you, what have you? So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? What prompted you to do a series of 11 episodes on negative thoughts? I'm assuming that your research research has taught you that that's a big part of the problem in our overall mental health, is it not? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Firstly, Steve, thanks for having 
such a thorough look at my my website. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, it stood out. I, you know, we have our own podcast, so so I'm looking and I'm thinking, hmm, that's really interesting. And then you you talked about one little finite part of of overcoming thoughts in each episode, and I and I flipped through a few of those episodes. Yeah. And you know, it really really interesting stuff. So I thought, okay, I need to bring that up. Okay. So. Okay. So, uh, Steve, on the website. Uh, all the things that I look for that will help people prevent mental illness in their life. Okay. So it's all about preventative mental health. So um, the, the love book, and uh, we've, we've done a lot of um, pod shows on love. Uh, it's, it's to provoke people to sort of think about love in their life, to get a vocabulary of the seven different love types because friendship is just as important as family, which is just as important as a romance, which is just as important as when we guide each other through life. These are all different sorts of love. And uh, so the overcoming negative uh, thoughts, or what I ended up calling overcoming useless thoughts, uh, because some negative thoughts can actually be quite useful. That too is to prevent mental illness in, in our lives. Uh, because one of the consequences of uh, modern society is that we actually have a lot more thinking time on our own. Uh, when we lived in households where there was, let's say, a small family in a large house rather than a large, a small family in a large house, okay, we would interact with other people a whole lot more. So uh, when you interact with somebody else, your sense of identity becomes more caught up in everybody else around you. And that sometimes that brings conflict, but it means that you're with other people all the time. Now, when we're on our technology and uh, we're watching our own screen in our own bedrooms and things like that, we spend a lot more time alone, which means we spend a lot more time alone with our thoughts. Yeah. And because we are being bombarded with a whole host of different ideas, it's very hard to navigate, okay, well, which, which ideas are the best ones for me? If you take any topic, uh, uh, if particularly a cultural idea, okay, because we have so many different cultural ideas at the moment that we, we, we seem to feel that we're going through some sort of a cultural war, okay? Well, you, you can listen to everybody's uh, point of view and they all make sense and you sort of go, well, how am I going to sort this out for myself? Uh, what, what do, where do I belong, okay? So rather than getting our sense of belonging with a small group that we call a family, we're getting our sense of belonging with ideas that we identify with. And so you can end up with this chattering in your mind, uh, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and this can go on incessantly. And that's basically why I put together the podcast series of Overcoming Negative Thoughts. So I know that this is going to be a really difficult question then. So because obviously we don't have hours and hours and hours of time like you have on overcoming negative thoughts on your on your website and, and in your your yeah. podcast recordings but uh what is maybe one or two little nuggets of advice you can give us and our listeners regarding what we can do to catch ourselves when when our thoughts are on any given day predominantly negative okay so uh in the podcast series i talk about a whole lot of different methods that will suit different people uh because Different people have different things. But I suppose the most basic thing that I could uh, share is to have that experience of standing outside your mind and just observing your mind and just observing what goes on. This is basically what meditation sure. is, is all about. And you will find that you're not actually bossing your brain. And then you've got to sort of go, okay, so where are these thoughts coming from? Bottom line is we don't know where or how thoughts are generated. Okay? Right. There has been some research into that, but you will find that there are basically um, your thoughts, your feelings, your body sensations, and then influences from outside you. Okay. Mm -hmm. And to just observe that and sort of go, okay, so there are these four areas and just to observe what's actually coming in from each of those four areas, you go, okay, now I can start to sort out some of the things that are coming into my mind. Where do I really want to go? 
okay? Mm -hmm. And just doing that will start to still the thoughts and you'll start to make choices on what thoughts and feelings you focus on. Great advice, great advice. And while you were sharing that, it made me think of Sam Harris. I don't know if you ever read his book, Free Will, which when you talk about, we still don't know where our thoughts actually are generated from. And he's a neurophysicist and a neuroscientist and and wrote this book on that exact topic. Pretty controversial book, but fascinating read. But uh, it is, it's it's a fascinating read. And as he says, we haven't worked out whether we have free will or not. Okay. Mm -hmm. But as a psychiatrist, I'm actually interested in each individual. And I know that each individual makes thousands of choices every day. That's, that's our experience. If, if I uh, prescribe a treatment regime to somebody, they will decide whether they follow it or not. Okay. So on that day-to-day practical level, I encourage people to use their choice-making capacity to make choices that are at least in their very own interests. Okay. Well put. So in other words, on a day-to-day basis, we have choice. Okay. And that helps to choose where to focus your observations in thoughts and feelings in your mind. Well said. Yeah, I like that. Another thing uh, I would like if we could to wind down this conversation on a topic that you also talk about, and that's gratitude. And gratitude has really played a big role in my life uh, when I've encountered obstacles and challenges and just kind of reconnecting with gratitude and, and sometimes physically forcing myself to sit down and say, Steve, it's been a yep. horrible day or maybe a horrible year, but yep. come on, what have you, you know, what do you have a right to be thankful for? And when you force yourself to do that, it can really just change everything. But you took it a step further and you created a gratitude acronym. I was hoping yes, you I could did. perhaps share with us uh, and our listeners. Okay. So, uh, This is nice, Steve, because this gets us uh, back to preventative mental health. Absolutely. And uh, and, uh, I I want to leave listeners with basic things they can do to foster preventative mental health in their lives. And uh, one of them, one of the mind things that you can do is cultivate the attitude of gratitude. And look, 20 years ago, we didn't have this evidence, but we now know that people who can cultivate gratitude in their lives are actually physically healthier, uh, emotionally well-balanced, okay? And it helps them overcome depression and anxiety-type thoughts, okay? Mm, so I, sense. yeah, it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing, Erin. And, and, and as you said, Steve, you know, we've, all of society has gone through a really difficult year. What do we have to be grateful for? And uh, it actually comes down to the idea of being grateful for life itself because we've got no idea why we are alive or how that happened. Certainly, I I didn't sort of get myself here. And, you you know, science can explain how we grew from, you know, two separate um, cells into a, a human being. But in a sense, like Einstein is credited with saying, Either everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. You get to choose. Mm -hmm. And the miracle of just being alive is you go, wow, I'm part of it. I'm part of the human race. I'm having all these amazing experiences. Now, these experiences could be seeing a butterfly, enjoying some sunshine, or arguing with somebody that you love. It's still an amazing experience. And so when you can take gratitude to that level, uh, it can overcome and strengthen you for the adversity that we find in life. And unfortunately, there's plenty of that. To go around, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's the acronym? Oh, oh okay, for gratitude. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So my gratitude acronym uh, is THANKS, morning and night. So T-H-A-N-K-S. Uh, the T is simply to think about how precious life is. The H is to help somebody else out. A is to appreciate the people around you. Uh, Just to say, thanks for being here, brother, or thanks, mum, or 
you know, just all those little things, appreciating the people or to appreciate somebody who's done something really quite special in your life, okay? The N is to notice beauty, all right? Uh, now, we don't have to go gaga about how pretty a flower is, but it actually is. A flower is actually beautiful. Bird singing is absolutely amazing, all right? Uh, butterflies dancing uh, is absolutely amazing and it will bring us joy and give us feel-good brain chemicals, but only if we notice it. Mm -hmm. So the N is notice beauty. And the K is to uh, keep a journal to keep perspective. So actually making a list of things to be grateful for because you're going to go through some difficult days when you're grumpy and you're in a room by yourself. And then if you can pick up a book that's actually written in your handwriting that says, this is what I'm grateful for. You go, oh, I do actually have some things to be grateful for. Darn it. I was yeah, so enjoying being right. miserable, but I guess I got to bring myself <laughs> right. out of this, darn it. <laughs> that's right. And the, and the S is simply to say thanks. Just wow. to use the word thanks wherever you can. Morning and night, it is a good idea when you wake up in the morning just to say thanks for another day because that was never guaranteed. And at night, just as you're going to sleep, to say thanks for the day that I've had, even if it was lousy. Again, um, you get a chance to do it again. And each day comes to us from we don't know where and uh, how we spend it. Is kind of up to us because I look. I, I used to work with uh, people who had heart disease. They uh, they go to sleep every night thinking, you know what? Maybe I won't wake up. Mm. Okay, so they're thankful for the day that they've had, and when they wake up in the morning, they're thankful that they've got another one. Right? A lot of people live that way. Uh, mm. So to bring that to consciousness is actually very helpful to cultivate gratitude. Yes, and what a great reminder. Yeah. It is. That's exactly what I it need is. To, I, it's a reminder. That's all that it yeah, is. Yeah, I feel like I need to write that down or tattoo it or something so I can see it all the time. Uh, Thanks. I love that. Part of the acronym. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've got it in some podcasts. It's on a little YouTube video. Um, and It's a uh, great video because you do it with music. You know, it's, it's awesome. You play the piano and the T is <laughs> where, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. And, and you make it lighthearted. And I love the fact that you just make it acquirable topics that are tough especially for us men sometimes to show yeah, yeah. vulnerability and to show some of the things you know that you talk about in, in in your talks and just manning up and showing gratitude for the beauty that is around you like you said just noticing it just observing it and it it, and it really does change your life for sure yeah yeah it can but it, only if we remember to do it and like Aaron said mm -hmm. we need those reminders <laughs> yeah Yep. So anything, any closing thoughts you would like to leave our listeners as far as just steps they can take in, in their daily lives for overall preventative? Uh... Yeah, well, what, what the evidence is actually showing, um, Steve, is that good things are good for us and bad things are bad for us. Right. Mm. So so basically all those things that, you know, to eat a balanced diet, to sleep well, to exercise, spend time out in nature, to cut down on your smoking, your alcohol, they're all the physical things that are good for mental health. Psychologically, uh, look, we did talk about gratitude and compassion, but particularly for younger people, meaning and purpose, to find meaning in life. And that's an individual journey for all of us. Mm -hmm. And then the amazing thing is that the brain is actually wired to learn. So if we learn, uh, we will actually get more of this, uh, this ephemeral thing called happiness. And then the social things that we need to do, it basically comes down to people, uh, spending more time with people, cultivating those relationships, which means, unfortunately, cutting down on our screen time and our busyness to spend time with people because we are social creatures. And so if we live to who we actually are, we're doing all that we can to prevent mental illness in our lives. Well said. Thanks for the opportunity to say that. <laughs> Thank you. This Steve. has Thank been you. awesome. The book is Seven Love Types, Navigating Love in a Fractured World. And you can find them at drchristianheim.com. That's D-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-H-E-I-M.com. And we will also post that in the episode notes. I'm going to borrow from the A 
and the thanks acronym and uh, focus mm-hmm. on appreciation for you being here, Dr. Christian. This has been just a blast. It's been so fun having you on the phone talk about a so serious issue, but it's been inspiring. And uh, thank you for sharing your, your wealth of knowledge. And we look forward to having you back again. Okay. Aaron, Steve, I'll focus on the yes and say thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I really have. The pleasure's been all of ours. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Christian Heim. To learn more about him and the work he is doing, you can visit drchristianheim.com. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tampoco. Our music was written and performed by Nadie Impertate. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you have a suggestion for a guest or have any suggestions on how we can improve our show, please send us an email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place.